This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. Our second interview for the morning is with Karen Mon. Karen is a well-known uh, investigative journalist. She's worked on radio, television, in print, online, domestically, and to some degree internationally as well. And she is the co-author of an extraordinarily interesting new book just published called, one word, it's called Nuclear. Um, not the nuclear family, just nuclear. And it goes into the extraordinary circumstances, the life of the seemingly unkillable nuclear energy deal um, that this country dealt with, is dealing with, may in fact have to deal with again in the future to build a whole series of nuclear power plants built and engineered and presumably financed uh, with Russia, but which were the centerpiece of some of the more interesting and terrifying political shenanigans that this country has had to look at over the last decade and a half. Karen, it's good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for that extremely generous introduction, and I really appreciate this opportunity. Well, I read the book, uh, and then I had to write a review of it, and I read it with two thoughts in mind. One was the increasing horror of the thing, uh, of, of the way in which this this plan that just kept going. And then the second one was, in spite of all of its proponents and all of the efforts uh, pushing to put it into place, no one ever seemed to explain to you or to me as a reader, why, why the former president was so desperate to make this thing work. I mean, I understand the, you know, the, the, the explanations that he felt a, a great debt of gratitude toward, toward, to the Soviet Union and Russia. Uh, and he had uh, various ideas about conspiracies and plots against him. But I, I never quite got the feeling anybody understood why it was such an important thing for him to have this deal, despite the cost, despite the, the political difficulties in making it work. As we speak now this morning, within a few hours, the long-awaited fourth installment of the state capture inquiry reports are due. And one of the topics that, um, you know, the Chief Justice Raymond Zondo has said in court papers will be ventilated is on the attempted capture of national treasury. And the nuclear deal is at the heart of that attempted capture. I mean, not least of all, because, you know, we had a, a finance minister literally in office for a weekend at the height of the kind of madness that engulfed that attempted um, capture. But I think the important thing to remember is that many things can be possible at the same time. Yes, it is apparent that there are certain members within the ANC who hold an allegiance to Russia, they say, because of the assistance that the Soviet Union gave the anti-apartheid movement during the very dark days of apartheid, at a time where Western nations were very um, silent until such time as the 1976 uprisings happened and the kind of suffering of the black majority became evident for the world. That is true. It's also true that at the time when the deal was signed in, in 2014, Jacob Zuma believed, rightly or wrongly, that Russia, Russian doctors had saved him from poisoning at the hands of the CIA. 
It's also true that he regarded the BRICS alliance that he had joined, South Africa had joined in 2010, as his greatest kind of political legacy, and that he may have believed that this was nuclear deal where we would potentially have you know, gotten 23% of our energy from Russian nuclear um, agency Rosatom um, and had that deal funded by them was a kind of profound solidification of that BRICS relationship. But there are also very, very rich grounds for believing, given the fervency with which this deal was pursued, that there were corrupt imperatives to it. You know, the betrayal of the Promise Report, which was released in 2017, for example, put out the speculation, which appeared to be grounded in quite strong sources, that, you know, the ANC had received something in the region of 100 million rand. There has been speculation that Zuma himself was a beneficiary. But certainly when I asked him about it in 2019, he adamantly denied anything of that nature and said repeatedly, that's just propaganda, it's propaganda, it's propaganda. But I think you ask an important question. And in the face of our kind of somewhat odd geopolitical positioning on Russia, where we have taken very firm views on other nations in terms of um, invasions and other issues, what is the imperative that drives the ANC government's commitment to Russia and its reluctance to criticize what appears to be very outright evidence of human rights abuses in the Ukraine currently playing out? Um, And until we get a sort of coherent answer from it in terms of that, I think there will be ample room for the speculation around corrupt um, agendas to thrive outside the realm of the geopolitical connections and, of course, the the obvious um, apartheid history, you know, relationship that, that the ANC claims is the basis for much of its, its relationship with Russia now. One of the things that struck me in your book, among all the other things that struck me in the book, and I, I, really, I, I really mean it, I, I sat there mesmerized for a whole weekend as I read it. Uh, I didn't get much else done, but I did finish the book. What was the uh, the oh so gentle mention of the Shiva uh, uranium mine project, which just happened to be part of the larger Gupta state capture project, which would have been the uh, uh, the, the source of the uranium necessary, or at least partly the source of the uranium necessary to fuel those. Uh, nuclear reactors were they to be built. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you raised that because the Guptas bought Shiva uranium in 2010, which of course is the same year that we see we joined BRICS. You know, the same year that a Chinese uh, delegation or 2010-2011 Chinese delegation arrived unannounced um, and unexpected at ESCOM and do a nuclear presentation. So it was very apparent that, you know, the BRICS the, the nuclear dimension cannot be ignored in terms of a card that South Africa may have put on the table in terms of, of joining BRICS. And certainly the Guptas appeared to have inside knowledge of that because why else would you potentially you know, buy a uranium mine um, in a country where there's only one kind of nuclear plant and there isn't necessarily a certainty of supply there? Um, but they went in with that and they, they bought that plant in, in 2010. Now, someone like Dave Nichols from ESCOM, who, who was very heavily involved in ESCOM's nuclear project, is at pains to emphasize, well, you know, uranium is at a fixed price. There's no potential for corruption in terms of, you know, buying uranium. 
That's not the point. What the state capture inquiry evidence has shown us very strongly is that, you know, the corruption occurs where, you know, it's facilitating deals. It's about the transport of the uranium, the consultation contracts, um, Mm -hmm. all the other things that are tied to that and which this family had shown, for instance, in terms of the South China rail deal with with Transnet, there were rich grounds for kickbacks, facilitation fees, consultancy contracts, et cetera, et cetera. And I would argue very strongly that had the deal gone through and that translated into a, a, a binding commercial contract, there would have been rich grounds for, for corruption to thrive in that space, particularly um, with that particular Gupta family network. Uranium is not completely a scarce commodity on the international market. There are various countries that mine it and refine it, and it's available commercially at fairly reasonable prices, as I understand it. It's not a scarce good the way some no. way, way lithium might be these days. No, absolutely not. And I think what's what's pivotal is that we show, like in the in the sort of later chapters of the book, how people, you know, there's this, there's this like removal of, you know, ESCOM executives at the cost of about 18.2 million rand in March 2015, at a time where the Department of Energy is sort of floundering around, you know, making the deal a reality. And those people are then removed. The only person who comes back, all of them would have been, you know, potential stumbling blocks in concluding a nuclear, getting ESCOM to drive a nuclear agenda. Only one of them comes back. Uh, Machela Koko, who then becomes obviously denied um, repeatedly in the state capture inquiry that he's guilty of corruption or has any kind of close or nefarious link to the Gupta family. But he, Brian Molefa and Aj Singh, who are all key players in, in the kind of state capture story, are then brought into ESCOM and become very, very um, vociferous drivers of the nuclear agenda. I mean, Brian Molefe, even when he testified at the inquiry, said that he believed that nuclear um, was a possibility and could be financed. So, you know, the state, you know, the the kind of um, ESCOM story is very bound up with the nuclear story as much as it is bound up with the state capture story. And I would argue very strongly that the deal really was the greatest attempted act of state capture that South Africa experienced. Had it succeeded, I mean, the implications for us would have been profound, not just on an economic level, but on a governance and anti-corruption level as well. There is a great novel in all of this. You just change a few of the names and have it take place in the country (laughs) of Ruritania, and you have a bestseller. Uh, We're going to take a break just, just for a couple of minutes for an ad or two. We have to pay the bills, and we will be back shortly with our discussion with Karen Maughan, the co-author of the new book, Nuclear. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We're back with our interview, with uh, our discussion, our conversation with Karen Maughan, the the co-author of the book Nuclear. One of the things that puzzled me, and I think has puzzled a number of people, you found a kind of unusual heroine in all of this. Um, And you know where I'm going with this, I'm sure. Uh, Tina Jumat-Peterson, who was minister for, what is it, uh, energy and mineral resources for a period of time. And many of us joked that she was the minister of the teacup. What you seem to be showing 
was that in really crafty bureaucratic terms, she was slow walking the deal through in such a way that it was perpetually going to happen, but never actually happening. I think you've summed it up absolutely beautifully, and that's why you're such an exceptional writer. But we didn't go in certainly viewing um, Tina Jumada Peterson as any kind of heroic figure. I mean, she was the person who had signed the intergovernmental agreement with Rosatom, the nuclear agency, in September 2014. And certainly, you know, she is someone who is massively controversial because of what happened with the, the Strategic Oil Fund, her mm-hmm. um, actions with Sekonjalo as Minister of Fisheries and Forestry. But what was interesting was that when we were doing interviews, a number of people within the Energy Department and actually within Treasury, also the DA Shadow Minister of Energy at the time, Gordon McKay, said to us, and Chris Yelland, your previous guest, actually said to us, don't necessarily write her off as a Gupta bot because her behavior and her actions, the record of what she did, actually tells a different story. Um, And, you know, she was fired in 2016 after she released a draft IRP integrated resource plan that essentially kicked the can for nuclear quite far down the road. And it was that at that point where, you know, uh, the the nuclear project was sort of shifted to ESCOM and then, you know, people like Coco and uh, Brian Molefe, et cetera, start taking it up. But, you know, she eventually ends up speaking to us and she basically says that she you know, through various mechanisms, stopping them from trying to use vendor parades, for example, to uh, uh, procure nuclear energy, putting the nuclear deal before parliament, the intergovernmental agreement, because it would enable it to be challenged in court against the advice of the state law advisor. And then saying, you know, this remarkable admission from her where she says, I knew I had to delay it until the courts could overturn it. And I wouldn't have necessarily believed it, you know, if it had just been her evidence. But there is kind of palpable evidence that she was, you know, that the the nuclear deal, certainly during her three-year tenure as minister, was substantially slowed down. One of the other interesting things that she revealed was that when, you know, we know Ntlantlanene, for example, testified at the Zono inquiry about hand being handed this letter, which he, you know, which he believed had come from Jumat Peterson to sign as a potential guarantee of finance by Treasury if and when this deal happened and ESCOM defaulted on payments or the Department of Energy did, that he believed it came from her. She now says that that was written by Jacob Zuma and she herself declined um, to sign it because she felt that it was not appropriate for a letter from ministers to be sent to Vladimir Putin at the time. So I remember, and I think one of the things that she said was that, you know, people could have their opinions about her, but she would never sell the country. And she had children. And she said, I have children. I would never sell this country. So one of the most interesting stories, I think a lot of people will be understanding, understandably skeptical, but certainly it does raise questions about some of the decisions that she made and whether, you know, there is evidence as some of the officials within energy and treasury have argued that in fact she proved to be the kind of most profound undercover stumbling block for this deal happening that Zuma probably didn't ever expect. You could have knocked me over with a feather on that one. 